Hello and welcome back to the Bible Companion series with P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, Offerings for the Tabernacle. Moses is now at the top of Mount Sinai. He will be there for 40 days and nights. God began speaking on the seventh day. This is what he said. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. These are the raw ingredients with which the tabernacle was to be constructed. The people would have the opportunity to be personally involved in contributing to the nation's worship center. Gold, silver, and bronze were available then, and from the beginning of creation, people were mining. They had the technology to refine gold. Egyptians were famed for producing excellent cotton and linen fabrics. The Israelites knew how to dye textiles and fabrics using natural products such as shellfish, snails, eggs, and worms. This suggests a high level of intelligence and sophistication. It is an insult to assume the ancients were not as smart as we were. Ram skins dyed red would appear similar to Moroccan leather. Acacia wood was a hard and durable wood found in the deserts of the Sinai Peninsula as it avoided wood-eating insects. Many spices arrived in the region from Arabia. Onyx stones are sometimes called chrysopath quartz or beryl. They were also to give other gems. God wants them to give willingly to this endeavor, but he will be the one who prompts their hearts to give. At this point, they are not told what or how much to give. It was left to their generosity. We shouldn't ask, what must we give, but what may we give? Or to paraphrase President John F. Kennedy, ask not what God can do for you, but what you can do for God. They would be in possession of such riches, even though they were escaped slaves, because God had prompted the Egyptians to be favorably disposed to them, and they willingly gave these riches to the Israelites as they departed from Egypt. They would respond so generously and enthusiastically that they had to be restrained from bringing any more gifts. The same thing would happen again when King David requested gifts for the building of the temple, and again to make repairs to it. Then God tells them the reason for the offerings. Then, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. The offerings are for building a tabernacle, the principal place of worship for the Israelites, and the tabernacle is so that God himself will dwell among them. Then he adds, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The blueprint for the tabernacle and the specific instructions on the furniture are divinely given and reveal a drastic change from any tribal deities of the day. It's rightly called a tabernacle since the word means to dwell. God promised to dwell in the midst of his people, which was an amazing concept. 
Scripture also calls it a sanctuary, meaning a sacred place or a place set apart as holy. It is also called a tent to describe its temporary nature because it could be collapsed or taken apart. It is also called the tabernacle of meeting or of uh, the tabernacle of the congregation or the tabernacle of the testimony, since all three of those ideas are included in it. Matthew Henry says this law was a testimony to the Israelites to direct them in their duty and would be a testimony against them if they transgressed. Since the people were living in tents in the wilderness, God also built a tabernacle so he, they would move when he did. Often we think God just described to Moses how to build the tabernacle since we read um, the directions. But he doesn't say, make it exactly as I tell you, but make it exactly like the pattern I will show you. What form this takes, we don't know. Whether a vision of the tabernacle or a miniature model, we'll have to wait to ask, but we know it was shown to Moses so that when he eventually inspects the, t the completed tabernacle, he will compare it to what he was shown on the mountain. Verses 10 through 6, the Ark of the Covenant. Next, God instructs the Israelites to build the furniture which will go into the tabernacle. The first will to be constructed is also first in importance among all the furnishings they will make. This is how they are to be constructed. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, uh, two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. There have been many drawings of what this ark looked like, but for our generation who has seen Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark, we have a better image of it and its purpose. Although in that movie, they treat it as a good luck charm to bring them victory in battle and they, and they carry it uncovered. The size of the ark was 42 inches by 30 inches by 20 inches. It had four feet, so it did not rest directly on the ground. It was made of wood and overlaid with gold, as were all the parts of it. It also had four large rings or hoops on the corners, through which two poles were inserted so that the Levites could carry it on their shoulders from place to place. This occurred until Solomon's temple was built. These poles were not to be removed. The only article it would carry at this point was the two tablets of covenant law, the testimony or the Ten Commandments. Therefore, it was also called the Ark of the Covenant. Some scriptures refer to it as God's footstool. Verse 17 through 22, the mercy seat. Since the Ark would have been a box without a lid, the cover called the mercy seat was constructed separately, but with the same materials and the same dimensions as the Ark, except for depth. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, 
and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherub of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put it in put in it in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. This mercy seat was the place where atonement took place. God's presence was above it in the cloud or Shekinah glory. Below it was God's law, which we broke. The blood from the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement stood between God and the broken law of God. The wings of the cherubim stretched up and formed an arch. The angels looked down in humility, like the seraphim, who used their wings to cover their faces. They looked at the blood of the sacrifice, the cost of atonement. Verses 23 to 30, the table. The next piece of furniture described was a table. It had similar dimensions to the ark. It was also made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. It had gold mold, molding around it and a rim a handbreadth wide with more gold molding on it. Like the ark, it had rings on the four corners at the top of the four legs of the table. This way, the table could be carried by the Levites. There were dishes of pure gold as well as pitchers and bowls which would be used for pouring out liquid offerings. But the main thing on the table was the bread of the presence, sometimes called showbread. It was to remain on the table at all times. There were 12 loaves arranged in two stacks of six, representing the 12 tribes, and they were exchanged once a week. This table was on the north side of the holy place. <clears throat> this bread was not set out to feed God, as pagans do in their shrines and temples. It acknowledged their dependence on God for their daily bread. This bread would be eaten in the holy place on the Sabbath by the priests on duty. It was part of the offerings they were to receive. <clears throat> Verses 31 to 39, the lampstand. On the south side of the holy place, opposite the table of the presence, they were to make a lampstand of pure gold, later called a menorah. This would be quite large and it would have six branches on it, uh, three per side and a central cup, seven in total, and patterned after an almond tree. The oil would sit in flower-like cups with almond flowers, buds, and blossoms on each branch. It was to be of one piece of hammered gold. This would give light to the priests serving there. The seven lamps were to be angled so that they lit the area in front of it. All utensils, such as wick trimmers and trays for oil, were also to be made of pure gold. It would be large since it was to be made of a talent of pure gold for it and all the accessories, and a talent is 75 pounds. Verse 40, then a final admonition, see that you make it according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. God, as creator, can prescribe how he is to be worshipped. It was not left to chance or their whims, but the whole architecture and design came from God. A word about angels. Cherubim, which is the plural of cherub, are a class of angels associated with guarding the divine presence. 
It's believed they are the highest order of angels. The other class of angels are the seraphim, plural of seraph. We find them in several places, most notably in Isaiah 6, 1-7, where they are praising God. They have six wings, <clears throat> two to cover their faces, two to cover their feet, and two with which to fly. Only two angels are ever named in scripture. Michael, who is the archangel, and Gabriel, who is God's chief messenger angel. God placed cherubim at the entrance to Eden after he expelled Adam and Eve so that they could not return. Angels are holy. They praise God. They were sometimes sent to protect people like uh, Lot and Daniel and the Daniel's three friends. They are seen in visions like Jacob's ladder, which prefigure Jesus as the communication between heaven and earth. Images of cherubim were woven into the tabernacle curtains and the veil for the Holy of Holies to remind them of the angels guarding Eden and the tree of life. Angels announce the upcoming birth of the forerunner and the savior. They live in heaven. They are God's servants sent to minister to believers. They, along with demons, report to God. They kill on God's orders. An example is the Assyrian army and also at the end of time. They are not omniscient. They don't know when Christ will return. They are immortal in that they never die, but they are not eternal as God is. There was a point in time when they were created. They watched God create the earth and rejoiced. Before people were created, Satan rebelled and took a third of the angels with him. These are demons. Hell was originally intended for the devil and his angels. They now remain in whichever state they were in since then. They are neither male nor female and do not marry. People are lower than angels in the realm of created things, but they have been elevated above them because of redemption. Jesus is greater than they are because he is their creator and they worship him. Manna was referred to as angel's food and the bread of heaven, but this may be symbolic of its heavenly source. They were somehow involved in the giving of the law. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels or the resurrection, while the Pharisees believed both. We will one day judge or govern angels. They are sometimes disguised as people, therefore we should practice hospitality. They are strong. They announced Jesus' birth to shepherds. They sang God's praise when Jesus was born into this world. Paul charges Timothy before God and the elect angels to be impartial. They ministered to Jesus during his ministry. They were present at his resurrection and announced it. They wonder at such a redemption of which they cannot take part. They were present at his ascension, assuring his disciples that he would return in the same way. They were available to protect Jesus if he had so ordered. They rejoice whenever a person repents and believes in Jesus. They cannot reverse our salvation. They will return with Christ. They will be the reapers at the end of the age, separating believers from unbelievers and bringing believers to heaven and consigning unbelievers to hell. Whether we acknowledge or disavow knowing Christ now will relate to whether he acknowledges or disavows us before God and the holy angels in the judgment.
They will partake in the judgments of the end times and preach the everlasting gospel one last time. In spite of their glory, they will not accept worship, and we are not to worship them. They are involved in battles in the heavenly realm. They will stand at the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem. They will continue to be a part of the heavenly host that praises God throughout eternity. Both of these classes of angels, and perhaps there are others, like the living creatures described in the book of Revelation and mentioned 14 times in relation to praising God, are not to be confused with a person who is identified with the angel of the Lord. We have dealt with some of the times he has already appeared and will continue to do so. It's believed this is a theophany or a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ. He is separate from but associated with God, so he is no mere angel, if one can use the term mere when referring to such a majestic being. However, angels are created beings and he is their creator. Scarlet Threads so what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or the Gospels do we find in this chapter? Well, God wanted the people to give willingly, and he still desires that we give willingly and cheerfully, because God is able to supply all our needs and because it is more blessed to give than to receive. It expresses our dependence on God. It will result in praise and thanksgiving to God by the recipients, and we will be rewarded. There is no more worthy place to put our treasures than into God's work. God promised to dwell among his people in the tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled or dwelt among us, his people, when he lived on earth. Um, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, John says. Also, Paul describes our flesh as a temporary tent that will be taken down and replaced with a permanent home in heaven. So God was in a tent in the tabernacle and in a tent of flesh as Jesus Christ. God would dwell in the tabernacle and later the temple. Now that God, the Holy Spirit, indwells believers, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit since God dwells in us. Moses was to build the tabernacle exactly as the pattern he was shown on the mountain. This was because it and many other things in the Old Testament are types, shadows, and patterns of the true which are in heaven or embodied in Jesus Christ. The ark was made of wood and gold. Jesus had two natures, human and divine. The Ten Commandments were inside the ark. Jesus had the law inside his heart. Later on, the ark would also contain manna, pointing to Jesus as the bread of life, and Aaron's rod which budded, showing him as God's chosen high priest, and picturing his resurrection, life from non-life. The blood from the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement stood between God and the broken law of God. It was a place of mercy. Because of Jesus' blood applied on our behalf, we receive mercy from God, in spite of the fact that we are lawbreakers. The blood of the sacrifice foreshadowed that the Messiah would have to shed his own blood to atone for our sins. His sacrifice covers our sin, so we are no longer enemies. God promised to meet them from above the mercy seat between the cherubim. If we want to meet with God, we must approach through Christ. The cherubim were made to look down in wonder at the blood of the sacrifice that reconciled God and man. They wonder at such a redemption of which they cannot take part. 
The bread of the presence, like manna, typified Jesus as the bread from heaven, which feeds and sustains us. The golden lampstand typified Jesus, who was the true light that came into the world. The light shone forward, and God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The lamps were to burn continually with olive oil. The Holy Spirit is often compared to oil in our lamps, empowering us so that we continue to shine so that others may see our good works and glorify God in heaven. We also need oil in our lamps so we are ready to serve and will be watchful for our Lord's return. Seven is a number of completeness. Here were seven lamps on this lampstand. In John's vision of Jesus in the Revelation, he sees him walking among a lampstand with seven lights, which represent the seven churches addressed in the book. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Exodus chapter 26. May God bless the study of his word.